Thank you guys so much for coming. Um, I really appreciate it, and uh, especially on Easter and uh, a time when we do celebrate the most important event that happened in history. If I can make it actually a confession. I don't know if you know this or not, but being a pastor means that Easter is the most difficult Sunday of the year. Why? Because you're expected to tell the same story over and over again. It's the same story, but yet you're supposed to be brilliant and insightful, and you're supposed to come up with something that no one has ever heard before. So I thought in order to launch into my thoughts, instead of me trying to explicate, try to share, and try to explain, I figured I'd let other experts do it for me. Love the ending. Do you want to tell a story? Sure. It goes like this. Jerusalem was a harboring place. The holiday was called Passover. Jesus came by donkey transport. Hosanna was the password. Pope branches were everywhere. People called him king. Days later, nothing was the same. From grand entrance to final meal. From the mat to the garden. Purchased 37 coins. Jesus was betrayed. And Jesus was arrested. <gasps> it was just awful. The high priest and the governor interrogated Jesus. The evidence wasn't to the dirt. And the whole thing was rigged. Even the crowd turned and chanted, crucify him. Jesus was stripped. Jesus was ripped. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was tortured. The whole crowd of thorns. Jesus cried, it is finished, and breathed his last. They laid him in a tomb, and they sealed it with a very big rock. The tomb was full. After the Sabbath, the women went to the tomb. Nothing had prepared them for the surprise that waited. The tomb was, was empty! The angel said to the women, don't be afraid. He's not here. He is risen. Take it out yourself. Now go tell everyone. This great news. It's still good news today. That tomb is still empty. And Jesus still lives. And that's the only hope for you and me. In this crazy world that we live in, it's, it's not, not complicated, complicated really. really. We are the Savior. Jesus Messiah. He died for us. When I survey, he was for us. Up from the grave he arose, he lives for us. Because he lives, so we worship him. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt, forgiven and redeemed. This is amazing grace. And that's what Easter is all about. Go tell everyone this great news. That tomb is still empty. Christ is risen from the dead. Trembling over death by death. Come awake, come awake. Come and rise up from the grave. So just in case some of us maybe haven't heard the story, that's essentially a nice summation of the story. There's this gentleman by the name of Jesus who, in the first century, approximately 30 AD, give or take, depending upon your chronology and how you like to date it, lived, uh, taught, made disciples, which means he garnered followers around his movement to transform the entire world, to take whatever story was being told about this ancient group of people called the Israelites and completely turn it over and over and over again to be this 
new launching movement into this world that we are inheritors of. And the thing that caused it to continue on was not just that Jesus was a brilliant teacher, was not just that he was a thoughtful rabbi, was not even that he was a charismatic religious figure, because the reality is on Good Friday, which is two days ago that we celebrate in our liturgy and our time frame, he was crucified. He, he was dead. And really, this is nothing spectacular or special. The Roman government, as some of you have heard us talk about this over the last couple of weeks, crucified people left and right. They ran out of wood in the first century because they were crucifying so many people. So this Jesus who started this movement ultimately dies on Good Friday. And then the movement is done. We have this little hint in the book of Acts where a wise teacher says, listen, don't bother these people. The guy is dead. And because he's dead, don't fight against whatever it is that they're doing. Because we had people come along before. And you know what? Their leader died, and as soon as that leader died, the whole thing just went away. So I urge you in this thing, regarding Peter and James and Paul, all these early followers, just leave them alone. If the movement is of God, you're going to only find yourself fighting against God. But if it's not of God, it's just going to die. So just leave it alone. Unknowingly, perhaps, he creates one of the greatest arguments for the truth of what happens on the third day, two days later. That out of that grave, out of that tomb, rose this dead man. By the way, the Romans are really good at killing people. They don't need, you know, crucifixion for dummies. They don't need any of this. They know what they're doing. So for this person to come up out of the grave and to rise again and then to appear to his disciples... It was that moment, it was that event, it was that thing that happened that caused the disciples and the early followers of Jesus to go, oh my goodness, everything else that this guy did and taught and said and shook up and challenged and revolutionized, all of that is true. And that means that how I live my life right now in accordance with that movement has to change. And starting in 30 AD, they began to do that. And it continued on and continued on and continued on to this day. Early followers of Jesus had a radical experience with this thing called the resurrection. And you and I are here today, and we are beneficiaries of their life and their discipleship and their teaching to this day. But it never would have happened if it wasn't for the resurrection. And so that's why this day, this Easter day, is celebrated so centrally and so important in the Christian story. Because it is the thing that pulls it all together. It's the thing that defines everything else. It's the thing that ensures that everything else that we understand has a tie, has a link, has a connection. It makes sense of it all. So that movement continued. However... Through time, many of you know that this happens when a story gets told over and over and over, something happened. Something pretty significant happened with the telling of this story. And if you prefer, maybe you prefer this icon rather than the other one. Something happened. And as this story began to get told over and over and over again, a variety of things began to pop up. By the way, all of these things have some value and have some meaning. For example, apologetics. 
Much of the conversation many of you may have been a part of regarding the resurrection is the argument that it is true. And part of what some Christians have taken on as the mantle of the resurrection is to try to argue with other people that it is true. And so apologetics comes along and says, the whole point is to argue and to make sure that we have convinced everybody that this is an historical fact within history. And I can tell you exactly when, how, where, etc., how it happened. Now, there's a lot of merit to this. We believe very strongly that this event is not just a fabrication, is not a mythology. It is an historical event. And for those of you who may have questions about this, there's plenty of us who would love to converse about what are some of the writings and the history and the data and the evidence that we use to support this particular claim. But the problem that I've run into sometimes is it stops there. It stops only as an argument about what is true. Another thing that has happened is this idea called escapism, which is what he's trying to do right now. (laughs) Escapism is the idea that as we have been influenced by other philosophies, the whole idea or the very foundational thought behind the resurrection is Jesus rose from the dead so that we can know after we die, we're going to go to heaven someday. Now, if you've been around Spark for a long time, you know that we have talked about this extensively. Going to heaven after you die is not the central theme of the movement of the good news of Jesus. The way that some people have put it is the whole point of the gospel is not about going to heaven after you die, but about going to heaven before you die. That something has changed right here, right now in our midst that the whole glorious theme of what heaven, whatever we dream about heaven, no more death, no more tears, no more crying, all of that stuff that is going to happen someday can actually happen right here, right now amongst us. Another thing that has happened is moralism, piety and purity and making sure that you don't do anything bad, you don't screw up, lest you uh, dishonor the resurrection or the crucifixion of Jesus. And the whole point of honoring the resurrection is just making sure that your life is all straight and perfect. There's a whole bunch of other things that may have come along. And like I say, none of these things is bad. Of course, there's a moral aspect to the resurrection and the Christian message. Of course, there's a beautiful hope and expectation as to what eventually is going to happen at the end of time and towards the end of our lives. But if we only distill it down into this fundamental, I once was here, but then I'm over here and I'm super, super happy, I feel like we've missed something central to what this salvation resurrection message means. On this side of the screen in the desert, this is people who don't know. And then if you can be convinced of its truth, then you finally get to understand it. On this side of the screen, when it comes to escapism, is the idea that, well, here on earth, things are crappy, but just hold on. Once you die and cross over, then things are going to be very happy. But on the moralistic side, especially in many Christian circles on this side, as long as you are good. And many of you, when you think about church and when you think about religion and when you you think about all of that kind of stuff, 
there's something that wells up within you that says, I don't want to do that anymore. Why? Because all I can feel is somebody pointing their finger in my face, shaming me, telling me how I've been wrong, how I've been disobedient, how I have fallen outside of the graces of God. And you know what? I just don't need that anymore. So you've lived on that side. And hopefully some people are trying to convince you to be good, be good. Because that's the whole point of the message. I'm going to suggest to you, my friends, that while there are some beautiful teachings to all of those things, there's something not full and complete about this message. Because what this kind of idea is, a separated world, some people call it a dualistic world, a bifurcated world, where on one side are bad, evil things, on the other side are good things, I'm wondering, the idea of moving from one side to the other, we usually call salvation, but I'm wondering, is it really salvation, or is it just simply a change of scenery? And what I mean by that is the conversation that a lot of people have is like, well, things were really, really bad, and things are really, really horrible, but then God saved me. And all of those things that I've experienced that are bad or evil or tumultuous, I am now outside of those things. And the salvation has come because I'm no longer living in that world. And if you hear the rhetoric and you hear the teaching often, you will get the sense that that is salvation. The idea that you've moved from one place to the other, that the bad things or the evil things or the immoral things that you've been a part of are now gone and gone away. And now you are living right or you're living in prosperity, or you're living in hope, and you're living in love. Now, that's something really beautiful, and there's a lot of life transformation that can happen. I have a feeling, however, that this resurrection story, and when you read deeply and carefully our ancestors and what they went through, that wasn't the full and complete story that they were telling, because the resurrection and all of the beautiful teachings about salvation come out of really dark, horrendous, bloody places. It wasn't the teaching of Jesus to say, I'm here, and now if you follow me, all is going to be a-okay, kind of like buddy Jesus, you know? No. The teaching and the message of Jesus was that I'm here and you're going to have to go through some stuff, but we will go through it together. And salvation's not going to come by me taking you, plucking you out of your bad, evil, immoral, horrible life and putting you now in a different place, which is what I'm calling a change of scenery. Salvation in this story is how you live in whatever evil, darkness suffering, chaos, that changes. And that is what it means to be saved. I find this theme woven all throughout the scriptures. There's just a couple of them that come to mind. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Wait, wait, though I walk through... Wait a second. I thought Jesus... God was going to be my shepherd, which means he's never going to take me through anything like that. That's what I thought. And it continues on. No, 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 no. 
God is my shepherd so that when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, something has changed in my soul and my spirit. And I have been saved from the despair and the hopelessness and the cynicism that comes from walking through the valley or the shadow of death. No, no, no. When this salvation comes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Jesus says later on um, in, in one of his teachings, take up your cross and follow me. This is a very, very different message from come follow me and you are going to have a, a, a nice wife or a nice husband and beautiful children and a house and the dog and a nice job. Take up your cross. The cross was a crucifixion symbol. The cross was an execution stake. The cross meant utter humiliation. You were crucified naked on a cross at eye level in public places as people were going to the mall to show everybody you do not mess with Rome. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, I can't imagine the disciples say, woohoo, now life is going to be great. No, take up your cross and follow me. Let me show you what it means to face evil and corruption and chaos directly in the face and still overcome it. Not to change scenes, not to escape out of the misery, but how to live in that misery with a completely different way of thinking, a completely different worldview, a mindset that challenges all of your presuppositions, all of your ideas, everything that you thought about yourself and how this world works. And by the way, that's exactly what happened. Because later on in this story, even after the resurrection, you have stories like Stephen and Paul who do not live happily ever after. In fact, we're, gonna, we're in a series in Acts we'll be getting to soon. Later on in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. This is after the resurrection. And in that moment, these disciples knew persecution is going to come. Pain is going to come. Suffering is going to come. Chaos is still going to come. But now we know how to live in this completely differently, to stare that evil directly in the face and still overcome it. Plenty of these stories continue on with the rest of the disciples throughout church history, not living happily ever after, but living into further chaos and further corruption. And yes, they did. They took up their crosses, and some of them literally died on crosses even after the resurrection. In other words, they literally picked up their crosses and followed Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death. My friends, I'm going to suggest to you this is what salvation means, or at least this is a whole other layer of what it means to be saved. Not that everything around you, all of your circumstances, that your bad job is suddenly going to turn into a good job, that your horrible relationship is suddenly going to turn into the most passionate expression of love that you've ever seen, that the death and the pain and the disease and the hospital visits are all of a sudden going to go away. Because if I taught that, you know and I know I would be lying to you.
But what this message is, is that you will be able to show up at the hospital in a completely different way. To hold the hand of someone who's suffering and in pain and going through disease. To hold the life and the space of somebody who's been rejected, beaten, bullied, abused. To stand even in the midst of a broken relationship or difficult, challenging circumstances and to be able to hold that space in a different way. And when you can face that evil and that corruption and that chaos in that way, in the way that Jesus did, to respond to all of those things with love and with justice and with hope and compassion, that is the moment when we become saved. Because the very depths of our hearts are no longer corrupted by the evil and the pain and the chaos of this world. No, we rise up to new life out of the grave. This is not a change of scenery. It's the exact same scenes with a different way of living. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 4. Many of us actually have this verse, I can do all things or everything through Christ who gives me strength, stuck onto our bumpers. We have it written down on plaques. We have it posted on our computer screens as kind of our life verse. I can get through this. I can, I can manage. I can, I can do this. But if you read carefully this passage, I know what it is to be in need. He is declaring that Paul wasn't escaping being in need. No, no, he knows exactly what it feels like to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul is describing the full gamut of life experiences, those moments in your life that you do celebrate, that are really, really good, that are so awesome and amazing, you wish that time would stop and this would be the experience forever. But Paul is also declaring, I also know what it means to live in Christ, to live a resurrection life when things are crap and the world is coming down and I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. And that hospital visit or that doctor's call is not what I wanted to hear. I can do that. I now can do all of those things through this Christ who has risen up from the grave. This may not be your typical Easter message, but I talk to way too many people that are constantly being reminded of the chaos that is in their world and how they thought that if they just followed Jesus in the exact same way that they were supposed to or as they were taught when they were growing up in Sunday school, how everything was going to turn out exactly the way it was supposed to turn out. And it didn't. So we need a different message. We need the one that says, even though I walk through that valley. There's a gentleman uh, by the name of John A.T. Robinson who wrote this book, Honest to God. A very challenging read where he is brutally honest with God. And in it, he quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, a pastor during World War II in Germany um, who's got an amazing history in and of himself. And he writes this, Christians range themselves with God in his suffering. 
That is what distinguishes them from the heathen. Man is challenged to participate in the sufferings of God at the hands of a godless world. To be a Christian does not mean to be religious, which were all those previous things that we had talked Uh, talked about in a particular way, to cultivate some particular form of asceticism as a sinner, a penitent, or as a saint. Being a Christian means to be a human being. It is not some religious act which makes a Christian what he is, but the participation in the suffering of God in the life of the world. This is what it means to live a resurrected life to truly celebrate this event that happened 2,000 years ago, where this Jesus went to the grave and was able, by the power of God, to rise up out of that grave. The promise that this story tells us was never, it was never the promise that there is going to be an absence of evil in your life or that there was going to be a presence of Christian utopia. Become a Christian and you will have the best life ever. That was never the promise. The promise was that this resurrection meant that wherever there was death, hope, love, joy, peace, compassion, justice, in other words, life, could rise up from the grave. That was the promise. And for those of us who believe so much in the beautiful life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, his teachings, and the legacy that he has left, this is what it means to celebrate this season, this time, up from the grave. Now, at this particular moment, Pamela is going to come up wherever you are, Pamela, and she's going to share a little bit about what one example of how life comes up out of the grave with an organization called Shevet Achim. Good afternoon. Um, Shevet Achim is an international community that began in 1994 with the purpose of helping neighboring children receive life-saving surgeries in Israel where they weren't available in the places that they reside. The name Shevet comes from Psalms 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And the Shevet team believes that this promise holds true even for troubled relationships in the the Middle East. Um, The volunteers live together in the same house. They share their meals, uh, assignments, daily prayers, and scriptures. And they have children, the, the parents and the children come and live in Jerusalem where they're going to have the life-saving treatment. And the volunteers actually um, walk alongside of the, the parents and the children as they wait for their surgeries and go through the whole process and provide love and support. This is Florian, and this cute little guy uh, arrived in Jerusalem on April 2nd, Florian is two years old. He's from Kurdistan in northern Iraq, and he suffers from a very complex heart defect involving a combination of four different issues with his heart. And the issues that he has with his heart is only resolvable by, um, through surgery. The only way that it can be fixed is through surgery. 
Florian has already undergone his initial assessment, and his doctor, Dr. Alana, reported that his heart repairs appeared to be straightforward, which is great news, um, and that he won't need any additional tests before he is scheduled and undergoes surgery. So the question here is how do we help? How do we walk alongside of the Shevet team? We as part of the Shevet community uh, have partnered with the Shevet team in sponsoring Florian with the $3,500 that is needed to complete his treatment. In addition, as individuals here at Spark, we can hold up Florian in prayer as we watch God's healing grace at work. You can also follow his progress on Shevet.org. So what I'd like to do is just have a quick prayer um, with all of you, if you can join in with me um, for Florian's care. Can you bow? Lord, our prayer today is for your guidance and for your grace for the Shevet team and for the medical team that will provide care for Florian. We also pray for physical strength and for a smooth procedure and a speedy recovery for this young, innocent child. We also pray that his family will, will have the support that they need to also make it through. We thank you for your amazing gift of compassion and for healing. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pamela, so much. If you want to know more, please see Pamela or come uh, talk to Danielle or I. But Sheva Dachim has been an organization that we've been partnering with for uh, many years now. And this is, to me, an example of this teaching. The chaos that's going on in the Middle East, for those of you who are following the news, it's still going on, yes. And we have no idea, we have no clue necessarily how things are going to turn out. And all of these moments, these places that we attend to, are still living in chaos. And this Christian group goes into that chaos and says that there is some life and some hope that can rise up out of this. And this is how we live. It's not that we're all of a sudden going to take it all away. But there are ways and there are moments and there are things that we can do, steps of redemption that could transform their life. And who knows what can happen as a result of transforming this family's life. Their life, this hope, rises up out of the grave. I am absolutely convinced that neither death nor life. Now notice these things, all of these things. Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I used to read that verse in Think nice, very wonderful, warm, fuzzy, sentimental thoughts. Oh, that's nice. That I will be loved. But now I look at this verse and I go, oh, even death, even demons, even the depth, even when that stuff happens, even when I go through those moments of tragedy and chaos, nothing will be able to separate me from this deep love that has transformed who I am as a result of this resurrection. So my friends, this isn't just some sort of religious activity for us. 
This is actually a, an invitation to a completely radical and transformative way of living into this world. And that's what it means to be risen up from the grave. Now, every now and then, I have a feeling that this is going to rear its ugly head and that you're going to feel tempted to be in despair or feel tempted to hope for something completely different. But it is our hope that through this time of celebration of the resurrection, that our whole entire minds, our worldview, our posture towards all of the evil and the corruption and the sadness and the disappointment and the chaos of this world is transformed no matter what the scenery may be. And through that, the entire world would then be risen up from the grave.